Amen. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew. Everybody's getting back into the swing of things with summer coming to an end and school starting back. And so we're going to continue on in our study of Matthew. We'd kind of taken a, a break throughout the summer. I think the last time we did something in Matthew was probably January or February. So I'm sure, I'm sure all of you remember vividly what was going on in the book of Matthew. I'm sure you do. And so we want to do a little bit of review today and then continue on looking at the book of Matthew. I've, I've loved taking a break and it's given me time to study through the book of Matthew a little bit more, and, and I've grown in my appreciation of Matthew's gospel. And one of the things that I've learned about Matthew's gospel is his desire to share with these, uh, these religious people, these Jewish people, to share with them the true identity of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah. And I feel like you and I may have you and I may have something in common with these Jewish people that Matthew is writing to. These people were steeped in tradition. These people were not first-generation Jewish people. They grew up in the Jewish community. They grew up going to synagogue on a weekly basis. They grew up memorizing scripture. They grew up hearing the stories of David and Goliath. They grew up hearing the stories of Noah and Abraham and Adam and Eve. And you and I also grew up doing the same thing. You and I grew up hearing the Bible stories. You and I came to church on a weekly basis. You and I memorized scripture. And you and I have the same need as these Jewish people. You and I must see that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That he is Emmanuel, God with us. And you and I have a desperate need to understand that fully. Here we come to Matthew chapter 16 and we, we mark a shift in the entire book of Matthew. Up until this point, Jesus has not publicly embraced the title of Messiah. Yes, he has, uh, he has hinted at it. Yes, Matthew has written it in. The very beginning of Matthew, chapter 1, we read this is the story of Jesus the Messiah. But up until this point, Jesus hasn't publicly stated, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. And here we see a shift in not only Jesus' teaching, but in how the disciples perceive the truth about Jesus. Whether we like it or not, you and I have many different ideas about who Jesus is. Even when I say the name Jesus, perhaps you have a mental picture that comes to mind. Many of us, it may be the classic picture. I believe it may be hanging in our senior adult Sunday school class. That classic picture that was painted in the, in the 30s to 50s, somewhere in that range there. And it's become kind of the, the staple of Jesus. I remember as a little boy... When I think about Jesus, when I thought about Jesus, I thought about a picture that my granny had in her house of Jesus uh, before Gethsemane, painted around the same time. Maybe you think of, uh, maybe if you're a little bit younger, when you think about the name Jesus, maybe you think about the actor that played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. Maybe that's the mental picture you get. Uh, still others, we, we may have other pictures of Jesus when we hear that name. What does that mean to us? And here... When the disciples heard the name Messiah, and when the disciples heard the term Christ, they had a mental picture that came into their mind because they grew up hearing about the Messiah, hearing about the Christ. 
And so when that term came out, they had presuppositions that led them in one direction or the next. And here Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And Christ reveals to his disciples two of the most important doctrines for you and I today. He reveals his true identity and he reveals his true work. Jesus reveals his true identity, his true work, and he tells his disciples what his expectations are for them. So today, I want us to recognize the biblical Christ. We want to identify the wrong thoughts that we have in our head when it comes to Jesus, separate the true from the false, and follow the biblical Jesus. The question we want to ask today is the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We begin reading in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. We read this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We know that the word of God is living and breathing. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to pierce between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, even dividing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So before we consider this text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning as we examine your word. As we examine this question, who is Jesus? Who do we say that Jesus is? We pray this morning that you would give us clarity, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, would challenge us, would bring us to a place of repentance, that we would see you for who you are, that we would trust you, and that we would be saved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We, we see this beautiful picture of 
uh, of Jesus bringing his disciples to the place of Caesarea Philippi. And then there's much, there's much uh, uh, benefit in, in looking at why Caesarea of Philippi, why that city. And if you remember uh, correctly, right before we got to this back in January, February, March, um, Brother Jason was here for the revival, and it just ended up that he was preaching through this section in Mark. And so that was another reason why we kind of paused it, because he already gave it to you then. So I'm sure you remember that pretty vividly as well. But he, he gave us some of the background of the, the, the city of Caesarea Philippi, of why this city. And, and we see that there's a lot of reason why Jesus chose this city to ask his disciples this question. This city, Caesarea Philippi, was, was known for, uh, for the many different deities that they worshipped. In fact, uh, this, uh, this very city was known as the, uh, the center of Pan worship, the god, the god Pan. Uh, moreover, as, as years came by, it became known as uh, even there's a cave near Caesarea Philippi that, uh, that was said to be the entrance of hell, entrance of Hades. And so all these things are playing into this when Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks them the question, who do men say that I am? People say that I am. Today, this same question is being uh, asked all around in our world today. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Every man, woman, who, or, or, or child who is ever born in this world must wrestle with this question. Who is Jesus? And the disciples answer. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. This is what Herod thought. Herod thought he's John the Baptist, back from the dead. Some say Elijah. He's doing things like Elijah did. In fact, it was prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Others say Jeremiah, the suffering prophet, the weeping prophet. And, and you could look to the life of Jesus, and indeed he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with griefs. So perhaps Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said to him, said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Jesus takes the question, the broad question of, of who am I, and he zeroes it in to the disciples and say, but the real question is not necessarily what the society thinks of me. The real question is what do you think of me? What, what do you think I am? Who do you think I am? The first thing that we see Jesus teaching his disciples is that Jesus teaches his disciples that he is indeed the divine Christ. He is not a mere prophet. He is not a mere teacher. Yes, he taught. Yes, he prophesied. But he is more than just a man. He is not less than man, but he is more than just a man. Here, Simon Peter, the, the spokesman for the disciples, he stands up and he makes the great confession. You are Christ, the son of the living God. And every word that Peter said holds great significance for us today. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Every prophecy in the Old Testament from Genesis 3 up until the end of Malachi is carried in this statement. You are the promised king of Israel. You are Christ. Not only that... You are the son of the living God. The son of the living God. Now, what does this have to do with it? The son of God. By, by proclaiming him to be the son of God, he is saying that the very existence that God has, the very nature of God, resides in you. You are not just an angel. You are not just a created being. You are not less than God. No, your existence, your nature is divine. You are truly God and truly man. From this very statement, we are able to say that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is the Father before all worlds. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. 
This is God of God. This is very light of very light. This is very God of very God. He is begotten. He is not made. He is from one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This is the divine Jesus who holds the world in his hands. This is the one that the author of Hebrews says, by his very power, the world is held into existence. This is the man, Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. This is the one who put on human flesh, deity in human form. This is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus hears the message from Peter, the answer from Peter, that you are Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John. You are, uh, you did not receive this by yourself, but it was given to you, it was revealed to you from the father. You are correct. This confession that you have made, this, this very confession, it will be the rock upon which I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are right in believing that I am very God of very God and very man of very man. Now, why is that important for us today? Because the very church that we are a part of, this church that we are a part of, it's built upon the foundation of the confession and the confessor. The confession and the confessor. How do we know who's a part of our church? Well, you cannot be a part of this church unless you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. If you cannot make that confession, then you are welcome to join us on Sunday mornings and worship with us. But you cannot be a part of this church. Because this is a, this is a uh, distinguishing doctrine that we serve the risen Savior. We serve the living God. We serve very God of very God, very man of very man. We do not serve a great prophet. We do not serve just a great teacher. We do not serve an angel. No. We serve Jesus Christ, the divine being. Peter says, on this rock, or Jesus says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The divine Christ tells Peter that based on his divine authority, he says that this church that I will build, the gates of hell will not prevail against it find out a few things about the divine Jesus. This divine Jesus tells us not only of his divinity, but he also tells us that he is doing something. He says, I will build my church. Let me tell you, I'm in the church building business. That's kind of what my occupation is. My job is to help build the church of God. And that is a daunting task because I deal with people like me, sinful people. Did y'all know y'all were sinful? I deal with sinful people. And I'm a sinful person dealing with sinful people. And it's encouraging when I look to the scripture and I see that Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock, Ryan will build my church. No, that's not what he says. No. He doesn't say that the deacons will build my church or, or that the people within the church will build my church. No, Jesus bears responsibility for the building of the church of God. He says, I will build my church. I will build it. Jesus will build it up. Jesus will care. Jesus is the great pastor. Jesus is the great father. Jesus is the great brother who comes along and builds his church based upon the confession of who he is and what he has done. That is encouraging for me and ought to be encouraging for you. This is no mere teacher we serve. 
If you look to our world today, you will see that there have been many charismatic people, many different leaders that have risen up, that have, uh, that have uh, brought support upon themselves, and many of them we, we celebrate today. We celebrate their leadership in our, in our country. We have many great leaders in our, in our past that just, they, they just oozed leadership, and people were just drawn to them. We think about people like, like George Washington. Have you ever read a critical biography on George Washington where people say, this guy was a slouch? You're not going to read it. Why? The father of our nation, he is venerated because something within him just screamed charisma and people were drawn to them and he led them well. But Washington is dead and Washington can lead no more. Jesus wasn't just a charismatic leader who could draw people to himself and who could lead them in the right direction. Jesus was the very son of the living God, not a dead God. This Jesus who was crucified, he did not stay dead because he promises the church, not only will he build the church, but he says that the the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This was an idiom in those days, a saying in those days, that the gates of hell, that represented the very gates of death. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is that not even death will stop the building of his church. It's encouraging for us as well. Because how many people have died with their great project left unfinished? I know many wives in here are probably looking to your husbands and saying, that thing that you were going to do 10 years ago, you will die before you finish it, right? I remember as a child, I don't know if we were promised or we just got in our heads we were promised it, but my father was going to build us a treehouse. Let me tell you this, my father will die before that treehouse gets built. And in, in, in seriousness, we see many people in history, many leaders, their desire was to build great kingdoms and, and great palaces. And, and yet, they died and their project was halted to ever remain unfinished. And yet what Jesus is telling us today, this divine Jesus, divine Christ, he tells us that not even death will stop the building of his church, the coming of his kingdom. And in order to to emphasize this point, to show us this divine Christ uh, cannot even be stopped by the gates of hell, by death itself, he shows us that he is not just the divine Christ, but he reminds us something else about what it means to be Christ, what it means to be Messiah. Who is Jesus? The first thing we learn is that Jesus is the divine Christ. The second thing we learn is that he is the dying Christ. Right after he tells us that not even the, 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 the gates of hell shall prevail against the kingdom of God, the church of God, he then tells us in verse 21, from this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, notice the language, not that he might, not that he could, not that he might want to one day, probably, no, but he must go to Jerusalem. And he must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, he would be raised. What does Jesus tell his disciples? Immediately after telling them that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that they have learned about since they were little, the one that the prophecy, Genesis 3, the one that would cross the serpent's head, the the, the son of David who would always sit on his throne, the, the promised child to Abraham, this promised one, this Christ, Jesus tells them that this Christ did not come to rule and to reign here right now. No, this Christ came to die. 
This Christ, the great enemy of this Christ was not the Roman Empire. The great enemy of this Christ was not the empires of the day that were oppressing the people of God. Those empires would fall. Those empires were temporary. Jesus had his sights set on a greater empire. Jesus knew that in order for him to raise a people for himself, you and I, he must take on not the Roman Empire, but the emperor of sin. Satan himself, he must take on Satan and the sin that indwells every one of us. He must take it to the cross and kill it. And he knew that in order to kill sin, to destroy the kingdom of Satan, he must give his own life. And so he tells his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer at the hands of the chief priest and the scribes. I must be killed and I must be raised again. This is a dying Jesus, a self-sacrificial Jesus. This is the same Jesus that must take off his outer garment, wrap himself in a towel, and must wash his disciples' feet. This is the same Jesus that must wear the crown of thorns. This is the same Jesus that must take in his hands and his feet the thorns, the, the nails that would, uh, that would nail him to the cross. This is the Jesus that must die, must shed his blood, must drink the cup. This is the Jesus who would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if there is another way, let it be, but not my will, but your will be done. This is a dying Jesus. But a dying Christ was not what the disciples had in mind. The disciples weren't looking for a dying Christ. They were looking for a reigning Christ. They were looking for a, a mighty warrior Christ who would take on the, the Caesar himself who would cast out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who would deal with those in the temple, who would deal with those who were oppressing the people of God. That was the Christ they were looking for. And so Peter knew. Peter knew the prophecy. Peter knew that the Old Testament said, cursed is the one who hangs upon a tree. He knew that in order to be the Christ, he must not die. So Peter, fresh off of his proclamation that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he pulls Jesus to the side. And Peter says to Jesus, Peter rebukes Jesus and says to him, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus says to him in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here we have a, just a, it's amazing the fall of Peter in, in just a few verses here. Peter is making one of the greatest confessions of all time. One of the greatest proclamations of all time. Peter is the one who says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then just a few verses later, Jesus rebukes him and says, you are standing in the place of Satan and you are acting as a tempter, seeking to prevent me from doing what God has called me to do. How quickly you and I can fall in the same trap. How quickly you and I can claim that Jesus is indeed our Savior, that He is indeed our Lord, and yet our idea of what it means for Him to be Lord and Savior is different from what the Bible teaches. And out of grace, Jesus rebukes Peter. Out of grace, Jesus says, get behind me. You are a hindrance to me. And He tells him why. For you have your mind on the things of man and not on the things of God. You are thinking purely in the physical. You are thinking purely in the human. 
Jesus says, in order to be the Christ, I must be a dying Christ. We hear these two doctrines that are central, central to the tenets of Christianity. A divine Christ and a dying Christ. We cannot have Christianity without, one of those, without both of those. If we do not have a divine Christ, we do not have a Savior. If we do not have a Christ who gives his life for you and me, then we do not have salvation. We must have Jesus as Savior and Lord, and we must have his atoning work on our behalf. Without one of these, we have no religion. Without one of these, we have no salvation. And here, Jesus shows us not only his true identity and his true work, he is the divine Christ and the dying Christ, but last and not least, Jesus shows us his expectations for us. He shows us that he is a demanding Christ. After using Peter as a, as a, a learning tool, you're, setting your mind on, uh, you're not setting your mind on things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. He turns to his rest of his disciples and he tells them in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What does Jesus tell his disciples? He demands something of them. Jesus does not just invite you to come to him. He declares that you must come to him for salvation. And he declares to you. He declares to you the expectations of what it means to be a disciple. Often when you and I talk about Jesus as Christ and Jesus as Savior, we have an idea of a Jesus who gives us our get-out-of-hell-free card and then leaves us alone for the rest of our life. But Jesus reminds us that when we follow Him in salvation, there is an inward change in our life. And this inward change does something to us. To follow Jesus means that we first deny ourselves. We deny ourselves and our, uh, our ability to save ourselves, our desire in this life. We deny those things in our life that we would so often cling to, those sometimes good things that would distract us from the Lord. We deny those things. And he says, not only do we deny ourselves, but we take up our cross and we follow him. That language has been softened in our day. When someone says to you, that's your cross to bear, or you must take up your cross, that language in itself has been watered down because we don't understand the cross to be what the cross was in the first century. But if someone came to you and said, you must take up your noose and follow me, you must take up your electric chair and follow me, you must follow me into the, the, the execution chamber and take upon yourself the, 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 the medicine that will ultimately be your death. You must do that and follow me. Then we, really, we realize the, the depths of what Jesus is saying. The cross wasn't just a tool of execution. The cross was cruel and unusual punishment. It was, it was a way in which, uh, in which uh, a criminal could be publicly humiliated and slowly murdered. And Jesus looks to his disciples and he tells them, following me is not all candy and comfort. How often do we want comfort in our life? We want comfort and safety, but this is not what Jesus is promising. Jesus looks to his disciples and he said, if you would come after me, if you would be called a disciple, a follower, 
then you must deny your comfort. You must deny your safety. You must take up your cross. And you must follow me. Take the world and give me Jesus. This is what the hymn is talking about. That all these things in the world, they are good things. How I desire for my family and my children, how much I desire comfort and safety for them uh, is beyond comparison. And yet, Jesus reminds you and me that comfort and safety are not the best things in the world. They are good things. And certainly, we ought to desire them. But not more than we desire Jesus. Not more than we desire Jesus. Because he tells us, what does it profit you? What does it profit you? If you gain the whole world, all the comfort, all the safety, all, all, all the security that you could ever imagine, what, what, is it, what does it benefit you if you gain all of that and yet you have lost your soul? What does it benefit you if 60 years in this life, 60 years, 80 years, what if you live 100 and for 100 years you receive the very best that this life can offer? What does it benefit you if for the next millennium, the next two millennia, the next three millennia, the next three billion millennia, you have lost your soul. And you are eternally separated from the one who loves you more than anything in this world. What does it benefit you? What does, it be, what does that sin benefit you? That sin that you're holding on to, that is separating you from the Lord. What is, that, what is that Sunday night relaxation benefiting you? What is that, what is that thing on Saturday night that's keeping you from Sunday morning service? What is that benefiting you in the long run? What is that activity that's benefiting you, that's keeping you from the Word of God on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? What is it benefiting you in eternity? No, not missing a Sunday night service will make you lose your soul. But it's a slow decline when we give up the, the things of God, the blessings of God. We exchange those for the worthless things in our life that do not benefit us in eternity. How often have I cling, clung, clung to sin, clung to possibly good things? How often have I clung to harmful things? And I have, I have taken them and I have said, these are mine regardless. And as I clung to them, they cut and they scratched and they destroyed. And I said, these are mine. And by God's grace, he ripped them out of my hands. But God does not always rip. Sometimes God demands that we drop them and we follow him because he has better for us. Jesus is a divine Christ, God of the universe, Lord and Savior above all. No one greater, no rival, no, uh, no one to even claim his throne. No, he is the divine Christ, very God of very God, very man of very man. He is the dying Christ, the one who atones for our sins, the only one who is able to stand before the gates of hell and claim, Lazarus, come forth. The only one who is able to look to you this morning and call your name and call you from the grave and you would stand and walk and follow him. He is the only one, the dying Christ, the atoning Christ, the one who saved us upon the cross. But he is also the demanding Christ. He is the one that wants your life, your all. When we stand and we sing, I surrender all, we sing that because Jesus deserves all. 
100% of our life, Jesus deserves this. And he tells us, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The question we must ask ourselves is what does this have to do with us tomorrow morning? What's the application for us? What must we do now? Well, the first thing that this passage demands of us, it demands that we would would identify those areas in our life that we are holding on to and that are separating us from the good things that God has for us. We would identify those. So for some of you in here, that may be uh, your very own sin or your desire to save yourself. Maybe you have never uh, denied yourself. Maybe you have never taken your cross. Maybe you have never followed Jesus. And the sovereign Lord of the universe looks to you today and says, follow me. Repent of your sins. Follow me. Turn from your sins. Follow me. And you will receive life and life abundantly. This morning, the first thing that we are called to from this passage is to follow Jesus for salvation. The second thing that this thing, this, this passage applies to us today is that it reminds us, it reminds us that even Followers of Jesus get things wrong. That if Peter can make a great confession in one sentence and then just a few sentences later be called Satan and be called a hindrance, this passage calls us to examine our life, to look honestly in our life, to ask our friends and family to help us identify those things in our life that are keeping us from the Lord's goodness. And we would pray, Lord Jesus, tomorrow morning when I wake up, may I deny myself, may I take up my cross, and may I follow you. And Father, by the end of the week, I pray that you would help me, that I would wake up and deny myself and take up my cross and follow you. Lord, if that means I cut this activity or this hobby, if that means that I remove this from my house, if I remove that from my life, Lord, let it be, because it is better to remove your right hand than be cast into hell. This morning, this is a demanding Jesus. And this Jesus will ask of you more than you can imagine giving. But the promise of this Jesus is that he will give to you more than you can ever imagine earning. The great missionary Jim Elliott, who was martyred at the age of 27 in a South American jungle, wrote in his diary before he was martyred, he is no fool to give up what he can never keep to earn what he can never gain on his own. This morning, Jesus calls you, come, follow me. Give up what you can never keep and gain what you can never earn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray this morning that you would help us to see you as the true divine Christ, the one who died for our our sins, the one who bids us to follow you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, and we pray this morning that you would bless our church, that you would build our church, and you would help us to trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.